Welcome to Indie Matters, the show from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, up here in Reno. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis down in Las Vegas. On this week's episode, video producer Tim Leonard has a story for us on music therapy. He shadowed one therapist who uses music to help people in Reno overcome trauma, disabilities, and more. After that, assistant editor Jackie Valley and I have a story on teacher vacancies and a program at UNLV that may help curb the shortage. At the end of the show, I talk with the Indies' newest intern, Nyoka Foreman, about reporting in her hometown, including recent coverage of the North Las Vegas mayoral race. Nothing else matters. You want to sing Nothing Else Matters? Yes. Sounds good. I love singing this song with you, Trey. All right, well, I am here with video producer Tim Leonard. And uh, Tim, you've been working on a video on music therapy, something that I don't really know that much about, actually, until you started reporting on it, that is. So to start off, I'm just kind of curious what a music therapist does. So a music therapist is a lot like a traditional therapist, right? They deal with the same kind of issues as like what you're imagining when you think of a therapist. They just use music as an additional tool. My name is Elizabeth Lenz, and I'm a music therapist with Notable Music Therapy Services here in Reno, Nevada. The goals are still very similar. So I was working on this other story, and it ended up falling through, but the person I was working with told me that she knows a music therapist that might be interested in talking about what her job was. And at first, I was thinking like sound healing or like somebody that just plays music for people. I didn't even know what music therapy was, so I was very skeptical. And so I went on a Zoom call with them, and they kind of described to me what the process is like, all the schooling that goes into it, and kind of the neurological responses that we have to music. So when I met Elizabeth, the music therapist I talked to in the video, and she told me she was working with a older adult who had a stroke and wasn't able to communicate anymore. But I'll give you an example of a woman who I see. She's 88 years old and she had a stroke a few years ago. Since the pandemic, we've done online sessions. And it's really cool because we get to do Zoom sessions with her and her three daughters. And two of the daughters live elsewhere, so they don't normally get to see her. Because of her stroke, she lost a lot of her speech skills. Her speech is very limited. She can sing because music is processed all over the brain. When a neural network is damaged by something like a stroke, you can re-strengthen that by creating new neural networks through music. The goal of music therapy is to have it transfer so that once you're not in the music situation, you still have those skills and you can still use them. You know, it doesn't always come out picture perfect. So she still struggles a lot with her speech, but within session, she's able to tell her daughters that she loves them. And that's something that we practice singing, I love you. When I heard that story, I was like, oh, I had this completely wrong, like what a music therapist was. And after that, I knew I wanted to do a full story about it. Yeah, it, it's definitely kind of not what I expected. I guess when I think of music therapy, my initial reaction is people get stressed out and you play music for them and they're less stressed. Because that's kind of how I interact with music, right? A lot of the time, you know, if I'm angry, I'm listening to some angry music. If I'm sad, I listen to sad music. You know, I gravitate towards music that kind of fits my mood, but that's not really what this is. It's more about the process of creating and playing music. Right. A majority of what a music therapist does is actually creating music with people. It's not playing music for them necessarily. It's tailoring music so that they can go through that creative process of writing a song or of playing an instrument. 
in school for music therapy, you have to take all these classes about neuroanatomy and how music and the brain interact um, and how music is processed all around the brain. So it's almost like little hacks that make learning skills easier through music. You have to have proficient skills on guitar and piano and voice, so you have to take all of that. You also have to take psychology courses, regular psychology and abnormal psychology, and be up to date on things that different researchers are finding within the field. We have these motor areas in our brains, and so when we have a steady rhythm, it, it kind of allows the brain to relax into that rhythm, and it's predictable, so you know when the next one is gonna come. Just priming, getting your body relaxed, and the predictability of it too allows for feelings of safety. Also, when you sing, you naturally breathe more deeply, which relaxes your brain. You're doing this fun thing, you're singing, but actually you're building coping skills, and actually you're reducing your anxiety. By doing that kind of circumvent a lot of people's natural barriers towards the goals of therapy. So if you just start hammering somebody with questions or start diving into their past, they might put up walls. But if you ask them to sing a song, you might hear them able to process those things that initially they were averse to or they might be scared by. But by using music, they can deal with some of those emotions mm -hmm. in a productive way. And, and speaking of dealing with emotions, one thing that Elizabeth mentioned during your interview with her was, you know, holding that space for people to deal with their emotions and how she handles it herself. I had a lot of trouble over the pandemic, especially uh, just seeing things that I never thought I would see. And there was uh, a rise in teen attempts of suicide, seeing kids and teenagers in just really grim, dismal situations. It's difficult to hold that space openly and compassionately and for all of the emotions and be very present and then to let that go. I mean, I'm in personal therapy for myself. I have been for years. Um, in music therapy school, they encourage all of us to get personal therapy for ourselves. Good, sit up nice and tall. And one thing that really stood out to me in this story when Elizabeth was talking was when she mentioned that morally she doesn't really want to charge much more for her services and that actually seems to have affected her life personally, right? Well, yeah, you know, mental health in Nevada, you know, not a great track record. The reason that she's having financial difficulty is because it's just hard to fund mental health services, right? We're still ranked lowest in the nation for access to mental health care. And it's a highly regulated field that requires Elizabeth has a master's equivalency or a master's degree, which is a lot of schooling. And she had to do a unpaid internship during that schooling. So she told me that she wouldn't have been able to afford any of that if it hadn't been for her parents supporting her. In some states, music therapy is covered by health insurance. In Nevada, it is currently not. Morally, I would not want to be paid more than I am now. However, I cannot afford to live on my own. <laughs> so, um, so I will say that I receive a lot of value and meaning from my job. The amount that I get to connect with people that I would have never met before um, is incredibly meaningful to me. A lot of her patients are low income or on disability. So they depend on 
donations or nonprofits to support their work. She's torn because she's 29 and she still has to live with her parents. But at the same time, if she's charging more, a lot of the people that she's working with couldn't afford to pay anymore. So she doesn't want to push that cost onto them. Forever trusting who we are. What were some of the things that kind of surprised you about the story that you weren't expecting to learn? My favorite part about the story, and uh, didn't make it into the video, being a music therapist has really improved her relationship to music. So she grew up in a musical family. She's been playing violin since she was four years old. There's not a time in my life where I don't remember being surrounded by music. I... I think as a child, being immersed in classical music especially, I had a very easy childhood, very privileged and all that jazz. And music, classical music especially, helped me realize the depth of human emotion that is possible. And then also music, my relationship with music, when I was just playing violin, and I still play violin and I love it so much, but I've definitely gone through times where I had a lot of negative self-talk inside my own mind about playing. And because there's so much focus on perfectionism and being great all the time and so you make any mistake and you beat yourself up in your head about it so working through that has been a big just personal growth journey for me she gets a ton of value out of meeting all of these people and working with them You can give so much to other people, but it is also very selfish in a lot of ways because you spend so much time with yourself and you're focused on your sound and every every little nuance about it. Going into music therapy has greatly improved my relationship with music. Music isn't about being perfect. It's not about playing Bach in a perfect Baroque style or anything like that. It's about... It's about connecting with people. It's about um, sharing yourself, expressing yourself, learning new things, um, getting to hear how other people express themselves because we're all so different. It's really cool for me how it's affected my relationship with violin because I just enjoy playing violin more now and I enjoy playing with others a lot more too. And I I think my own you know work in therapy and all that kind of stuff um, has helped a lot with the negative self-talk. So now I can just be present when I make music and enjoy it. Take my All right, Tim, well, thanks for talking with me today. And make sure to watch his video on our website, thenevadaindependent.com, or on our YouTube channel or any of our social media channels as well. That's right. Thanks, Joey. Gorgeous tray. Thank you, Lefty. Yeah. What do you feel like doing next? All right. Well, we are moving on now from music to teaching. And, and Jacob, you and Jackie and I have all worked on the story together. It's kind of a multifaceted story talking about the Clark County School District, teacher vacancies, and a, a program at UNLV that's helping employees switch to education. 
That's right. So there's a lot of facets to this story, but the real crux of it is that in Clark County, there's a teacher shortage that's now worse than ever, uh, just as a side effect of COVID, but for a lot of reasons. So Jackie ended up talking to a bunch of teachers to get to the bottom of why they were leaving the system. And from my end, uh, you know, I spoke to college deans and uh, program administrators and and people who are trying to get into teaching and get their teaching licenses to get a sense of um, how those vacancies are going to get filled at the end of the day. It's called the Great Resignation. Across the nation, thousands of workers have called it quits, leaving companies and organizations scrambling to fill the vacancies. We're hiring signs, decorate store windows. Now the pandemic era and all its challenges have ignited fresh concerns that the nation could be on the precipice of a mass teacher exodus. Several surveys, including the one conducted last year by the Rand Corporation, show that large numbers of educators are considering leaving their jobs. But teachers saying they're leaving and actually leaving are two different things. It's too soon to tell whether there's a large trend afoot nationwide. Employee separation data from the Clark County School District, however, is raising concerns in Southern Nevada. Jackie Valley has more. So um, for so many school years in a row, a long time now, Clark County School District has always started the school year with a teacher shortage. It's been an annual problem. This year was no different. However, what we're seeing is that these vacancies have increased throughout the year. So as of like mid to late February, the vacancy count for licensed classroom educators was approaching 1,300. Now, some of those positions are ones that are coming online for the next academic year, meaning they're employees who've given notice that they're retiring, resigning at the end of the year, or principals are building their budgets for the next school year and projecting enrollment growth and that type of thing. So it's not necessarily indicative of having like 13 vacancies right now, but it's a combination of both. And there's fear that this number will only increase as the school year comes to a close when more teachers are typically looking to put in notice at that point in time. The other part of this that's worrisome is a look at employee separation data. So the Clark County School Board of Trustees receives these monthly reports showing employees who've separated from the school district. So it lists their names, their schools, their jobs, and the reason for their leaving. And it's everything from retirement to resignation to dissatisfaction with the district, personal reasons, medical reasons, et cetera. And what's interesting right now is that those have increased dramatically from August through January compared to previous years. So we had about 970 in August of 2021 through January of this year. And that's about a 67% increase compared with the average for the past decade. So that's showing really that, okay, we might have a trend and a problem here. As teachers have left the system or the profession outright, there's been an increased focus on how to replace those teachers. Some of the pathways are more traditional. Students go to college, get a degree, work through student teaching, and get their license. But now at a time when the shortage is getting worse, not better, there's been an increased focus on how to change those pathways or to create new programs to fill gaps that are more apparent than ever. That's taken the shape of mentorship programs, expanding dual-credit high school programs, And at UNLV, tapping an existing pipeline of employees who have often already been working in Clark County schools for years. Support staff, the Paraprofessional Pathways Program, or PPP for short. 
It provides a one-year crash course for support staff who already have an associate's degree or several years of college credits. In essence, it's a fast track for people who just need that final layer of formal education before they can get their license. One of the employees in that program, Maria Romero, says that while it's been an intense experience with new classes every few weeks, it's also provided her an opportunity to do something she's wanted to do for almost a decade. It's fast track. It's super fast track. But it's, it's great how we are learning. We're teaching already. We are teachers. I consider myself a teacher. I don't have the degree, but I consider myself a teacher. The struggles facing teachers today aren't necessarily new. Educators had voiced concerns about feeling overwhelmed and undersupported before COVID-19 emerged. But the pandemic learning disruptions exacerbated some issues. For instance, fourth grade teacher Clarence Moody left the Clark County School District in October because his frustration grew when in-person learning resumed full-time this school year. He encountered students who lacked foundational reading and math skills and he didn't feel the district had a solid plan for addressing those academic challenges. So Clarence, or Mr. Moody to his students, he loved teaching. He came in. It was a career change for him. He'd been in the corporate world, but he always had a call to teach. So he went through an alternate route to licensure program and started uh, several years ago with the school district. And, you know, he talked about how he felt like there wasn't always great leadership within the schools. And it led to him feeling like he didn't have enough support along the way. And this school year, not only was in-person learning resuming for the first time, but his school received a new principal a week or two before school actually started. So there was a lot happening. And then he explained being super excited to be with the kids again, but then overwhelmed, realizing how behind they were. He was at a Title I school, and he knows that a lot of the kids through distance learning had their own struggles even accessing and being there all the time. So as he's teaching, he's realizing more and more how behind they are. And he was discouraged because he said the district was really pushing them to just keep going. He felt pressure to just keep moving without revisiting some of those skills they missed. And it worried him. And he said he was, uh, quote, disenchanted with the entire process. And so after much consideration, he received an offer to return to the corporate world and accepted. He said he cried, his students cried, um, and he packed up his stuff and left. However, the interesting thing about him is that all of his school supplies, classroom decor remains packed up in his van. He knows that he'll return in some capacity someday. He just needed to depart from the profession and the school district right now. So where are the new teachers going to come from? Enrollments at both Nevada Education Colleges and the largest regional colleges like Brigham Young University in Utah or Arizona State and Northern Arizona University show mixed trends that often run in tandem with overall enrollment. At UNLV, education student enrollment has remained largely steady since 2016. But at UNR, enrollment at its education college dipped about 12% over the last five years, while enrollment at the university overall is down a little over 4% in the same time period. Still, for UNR's education college dean Donald Easton Brooks, there is more that traditional teaching programs can do to prepare the next generation of teachers. We can do a better job. We can do a much better job. And I'm speaking to uh, both our state systems and our universities. One of those areas is equity and diversity in the classroom. 
Not only are there vast disparities between highly diverse student bodies and less diverse teaching staffs, but he argues there are shortcomings in the way systems are built to address staffing gaps and issues like implementing culturally responsive teaching practices. We want quick fixes from a legislative view about teaching rather than stepping back and putting the training into how do we develop these things that are relevant to Nevada. And so I think those are some of the challenges that we think about from an economic lens. But I know we're below the national level when it comes to spending per pupil, and that's something we can get better at. With roughly 1,300 licensed educator vacancies already in the Clark County District and not a robust pipeline of aspiring teachers, that doesn't bode well for the future. There's typically a spike in retirements and resignations near the end of the school year, meaning those vacancy numbers could soar by summer. An official from the statewide education union recently called the situation a major crisis that's been brewing in Southern Nevada. I talked to more than a handful of educators who either had already left or are leaving at the end of the school year. And one teacher, he is also one of those who switched careers and became a teacher later. And he went through an ARL program, which is one of those expedited certification programs that got him into the classroom a lot sooner. And he said that the one downfall of it is that he felt like he didn't have a lot of classroom management experience. And again, did not feel like he got the support he needed from others in the education realm. Uh, He said he loved his department colleagues and they had this collegial atmosphere, but he was ultimately suffering in the classroom. He said he loved the students and felt good when they were learning and enjoying his lesson plans, but increased student behaviors after coming back this year. And it just got to be too much. So he left also in the fall, took a part-time job in retail, and now is traveling around the country in a travel trailer, trying to decide what he wants to do next. He also has not ruled out a return to teaching at some point, but in his words, he wanted some time to reflect and figure out the next best move. And, and so it's kind of a combination of these things. Like, I think the, the themes are feeling overwhelmed. Like they don't have support either from their school leaders or from a materials and curriculum standpoint. More things being piled on their plates constantly that just has reached a tipping point. Clark County Superintendent Jesus Jara said he's concerned about both teacher retention and recruitment. He emphasized that it's been a long-standing problem in the district, but data we looked at indicates it's getting worse right now. In January, the district announced retention bonuses of $1,000 for all full-time employees. If those same people remain employed by the school district on May 25th, they're eligible for an additional $1,000. But as educators have repeatedly pointed out, it's not all about money. It's about working conditions and support. Jara said the district is creating a retention plan that would include professional development and better materials for teachers. No other details have been released. And now we're going to hear from one of our newest interns, Nyoka Foreman. Yeah, I sat down and chatted with her about her history with journalism and also some stories that she worked on for us, including the North Las Vegas mayoral debate and also a story that she wrote for us when she was freelancing on the UNLV poverty simulation. So let's hear that now. Well, I am here with Nyoka Foreman, one of our new interns. Welcome, Nyoka. How is it going? This has been your, your first week, right? Yes, and it's been going amazing. I really like it so far. I got my start in journalism at Nevada State College. I made two short documentaries, 
and that led me down a path of pursuing journalism. After that, I launched a newsletter series. So I was just in this freelance space for a while. Cool. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about those documentaries that you worked on? Sure. Okay. So the first documentary that I made was called Mama's Mama. And that is about my grandmother who passed away. But I was able to spend some time with her before her final months. And we shot a documentary. And it was supposed to be like a day in the life observing her as she is battling dementia. And it came out to be a very sentimental, emotional, short story. And my family loved it. I loved it. It was pretty emotional. And the other documentary that I made is called Dope Daddying. And that explored how fatherhood in the Black community is communicated through media and how fathers feel about that. And them challenging that narrative of absentee Black fathers. They're both on YouTube under Nyoka Foreman. I made them as a student, so don't judge, but they (laughs) are really cool. (laughs) They're really cool. And another story that you're working on right now, and by the time this podcast comes out, will be published, is the the North Las Vegas mayoral debate. Tell me a little bit about that. Something that I actually haven't been paying a ton of attention to. I know that Mm -hmm. John Lee, the current mayor of North Las Vegas, is running for governor as a Republican. But what are we looking at in terms of in terms of the candidates that are running now in North Las Vegas? So the North Las Vegas mayor's race is very exciting. I'm born and raised in Las Vegas, specifically North Las Vegas. And we are expecting to see our first Black mayor. So it's really exciting to see all the diversity of leadership in that space who's running for that seat. I got to cover the forum that was at Brindley Middle School. Another component that I thought was unique forum at a middle school in the neighborhood, really taking up our schools as a community resource. So it was really exciting. It was a high-spirited discussion and attendees were able to learn where the priority is, which it came down to housing development and policing. Currently, there's a temporary police chief in place because the North Las Vegas police chief recently retired. So the next mayor will appoint a new police chief. So there was a lot of conversation regarding that. The topic of rent control came up and every candidate at the forum said that they would enact rent control if Nevada passed a law that gave them the authority to do so. Can you tell me uh, who the candidates were that were at the forum? Yes, there was four candidates there. Nathan Atkins, Robert Twix Taylor, Senator Pat Spearman, and Councilwoman Pamela Goins-Brown. And all four of them said that they would enact rent control. It was a very vibrant crowd. You had decorated veterans. ACLU Nevada was there. Other electeds were present. And and also going back a little bit now, we've talked about some of the stories that you've been working on as an intern, but also you freelanced for us for a little bit. You wrote two freelance pieces for us. And one of them that really stood out to me um, was something that I've helped cover in the past, which is the poverty simulation at UNLV. Um, explain to me what, what that is. So our audience knows a little bit about that and then what you reported on and what you saw. The poverty simulation is an activity for health students at UNLV. So that includes medical students, dental students, and nursing students. All three of those departments come and they participate in an activity in which they are submerged into 
a poverty scenario. Sometimes they are single, sometimes they are in a family and their father, their mother, their child. They might be a teen with a child in this household and they have a month to secure their house, buy groceries, take care of their children, pay bills, et cetera, et cetera. But they have a lot of difficulties in doing so. And what they're supposed to take out of that simulation is the day-to-day struggle of living in poverty and seeing how healthcare is not a priority for people who live in these impoverished situations. And what they want to drive home is two things. They want students to someday become advocates for changing the healthcare system and addressing needs. And they want them to be prepared for clinicals because these are some of the individuals that they will be treating and they need to be aware of all of the resources that are out there to get families and people on a healthcare plan that is suitable for their lifestyle. What are some of the stories that you're looking to in the future, you know, as you, as you move forward in your internship? Well, starting out, my main focus is community affairs. So mm-hmm. education, what are we doing in the school district to make our schools better for students? What are we doing in terms of jobs in our workforce? Are we, are we creating more jobs? Are we truly being diverse? Are we truly being inclusive? Are we creating gainful employment? I'm interested in the cannabis industry and policies that are meant to be equitable and how are they creating equitable change and sustainable change at that. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. We'd like to thank Elizabeth Lenz, Tim Leonard, Jackie Valley, and Nyoka Foreman for being on the show this week. This show is produced and edited by Joey, with additional editing help from Michelle Rendells, Riley Snyder, and Jackie Valley. If you want to support the show, leave us a rating and review wherever you listen, and email us with questions, comments, concerns, compliment suggestions for a grumpy dwarf named Cecil, or whatever else is on your mind at joey at com or jacob at com. Our theme song is from the band People With Bodies, and we have additional music from Storyblocks, Elizabeth Lenz, and original music from Joey. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you next week. For a lot of reasons, and we'll get into those reasons in the story, and I'm just rambling now, so... Let me think. What should I say?